This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. Today we talk about the topic of loneliness with two experts. Rachel Margolis is from the University of Western Ontario. She recently published an interesting piece in the Journals of Gerontology Social Sciences titled Measuring Older Adult Loneliness Across Countries, an International Comparative View. And Stacy Torres from the University of California, San Francisco, author of On Elastic Ties, Distance and Intimacy in Social Relationships in Sociological Science and Aging Alone, Gossiping Together, Older Adults Talk as Social Glue in the Journal of Gerontology, Social Sciences. We're going to talk about loneliness, its ills, its causes, and much more coming up next. So the, the, the COVID-19 crisis has exposed a lot of social problems that had long been festering outside of the broader public's attention, and they're coming into view right now, right? There's the tolls of domestic violence and children's need for a safe place at school. There's the tolls of drug addiction and mental health services that have been cut off. And loneliness is another problem that exerts a toll that has been pretty acute during COVID-19, but it's been a problem the whole time. And it might be that a lot of us are only getting clued into the problem. Loneliness is also a pretty interesting topic for sociologists. I mean, we study social life, and the topic of loneliness almost strikes at the heart of what we study, like uh, uh, how the social binds us and how we as social animals need to connect to others. Like just it touches that pack animal soul that we have and that we all study as sociologists. And so it's a real treat to meet two experts on the topic, Rachel Margolis and Stacy Torres. It's a pleasure to meet both of you. Let me introduce you uh, one at a time. We'll start with Rachel Margolis. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. So Rachel's from the University of Western Ontario, rebranded as Western University is my understanding. (laughs) Yes. And do you want to tell us about your work in the topic of loneliness? Like uh, where, where does your expertise focus? What are your interests in the topic? Yeah, so I'm a family demographer by training, and so I didn't set out to study loneliness, but a lot of changes in families are related to changes in who we see every day and who we interact with. So I sort of came at loneliness from studying changes in family structures. And so when we think about like what's happening to loneliness over time and is there an increase in loneliness, we have to think about these changes in broader society. And one of these big ones is changes in family. And another one is population aging. So that's sort of how I, I came to study loneliness. That's amazing. And I, I, we've got to talk about these today because they're huge topics. But before that, Stacy Torres from the University of California, San Francisco. Stacy is also an expert on loneliness, but you come at it from a different angle. You want to just tell us what you do in, the, in that space, Stacy. So I'm an ethnographer, and um, like Rachel, I also didn't set out to study loneliness. And even in my study, you know, reflecting on my findings, I'm not really sure I can brand myself as an expert in loneliness, per se, just because my participants were able to deal with many challenges that may induce loneliness, like living alone uh, in kind of serendipitous and unconventional ways. But I also didn't set out to study older adults, but that's been the focus of my ethnography. And so I, I was really interested in this place where they would hang out, this local bakery, which eventually did close due to gentrification and losing a lease. And I found that they, you know, had this whole web of relationships that uh, 
is kind of hiding in plain sight that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you spent a lot of time with these older adults. And I did. And so um, I've been thinking a lot about loneliness and, and isolation and living alone and, and ways to prevent this. And uh, I've certainly learned a lot from my research participants. Yeah, I, I read some of your pieces and so much of uh, what you wrote rang true. We'll, we'll get to it. But before we start off, you know, we have a wide audience and a lot of people just they know loneliness in terms of the plain language expression, but they might not be familiar with the concept as it's used in our discipline. So let's start off with that. When social scientists are talking about loneliness, what are they talking about? So when we talk about loneliness, we're talking about this mismatch between what people have in terms of their existing social relationships. So not just the quantity, but also the quality of who they're interacting with. And then on the other hand, it's what they want their relationships to be like. So, you know, loneliness, I think, has three key features. It's like, one, you have this deficient social relationships uh, set. Uh, second, it's subjective. And third, it's distressing to people. And so we generally measure this in surveys with a pretty simple question, like how often do you feel lonely or have you felt lonely much of the time, you know, over the last week? And so we have really simple measures of uh, measuring it at the macro level. And I think it's a topic that we can study from lots of different angles with different kinds of methods. Yeah, no, I think Rachel did a great job of breaking down some of these distinctions. Um, one of the sort of common confusions is, is, you know, social isolation, the state of being alone, loneliness, and um, it's it's really different. And so you can you can be alone and be completely satisfied with that. You know, you can view it as solitude, whereas loneliness, I do feel, has this emotional kind of anguish feeling that comes along with it. Well, one thing that's really interesting to think when we think about uh, COVID and loneliness is that people have different thresholds for loneliness, right? So this this issue of social isolation not being the same as being alone is a really important one. And I think it's something that we don't measure as well in our surveys, but COVID has really brought it up. So I'm a pretty social person. And so I like a lot of social interaction. And so for me, I get lonely easily when there are other people who are pretty happy being on their own most of the time. And so even though they might be much more socially isolated than I am, they might feel less lonely. And so I I think that we do a pretty good job of measuring people's networks and people's interaction, but not really a good job of thinking about, well, what people actually want, like what's their, their baseline threshold for being lonely. You make mention of the possibility of people having a lot of social ties, but still feeling lonely. Like, how how does that happen? How does somebody, how can somebody be surrounded by family and friends and and feel alone? I mean, I would say, you know, it's certainly um, possible, you know, feeling of being this like, you know, loner in a crowd. And um, I mean, just thinking off the top of my head, that seems to indicate a mismatch between sort of the company that you're keeping, that you don't feel either integrated with them, you're not sharing their values, you don't feel recognized or respected or validated. And there's some sort of, you know, discrepancy happening, even though you may have, (laughs) you may have some company, but you're not exactly, you know, excited to hang out with them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Stacey's saying. And I think one uh, thing that people talk about with loneliness is that, well, married people can't be lonely, right? But actually, a lot of married people are lonely because they don't feel seen or maybe the quality of other types of relationships that they're in are not meeting their needs. So it's really about like what people's social needs are and not just the quantity, but like the quality of those interactions. What happens to people when they're lonely? 
Well, I mean, loneliness, I mean, especially um, topic of loneliness comes up a lot when we are thinking about older adults, especially. And I think, you know, there's some good reasons for that. I also think that that reflects um, some kind of cultural biases and sort of fears and, and misunderstandings about uh, life at older ages. But um, there are physiological, you know, negative outcomes that can occur in your health if you're lonely. So you're, you're, I remember this coming up with COVID, um, you know, your immune system can be suppressed. There are different cardiovascular risks. Um, it's just kind of a, not a good state for your overall body to be in a state of, of anguish and kind of anxiety and, and sadness. And I mean, certainly if you're in a state of loneliness that becomes a chronic state of depression, that's also not gonna be good for your health in the long run. Yeah, I think that it's like, it's kind of useful to think about how the health effects of isolation are different from the health effects of loneliness. So, so the health effects of isolation are important, sort of if people need help with something specific, like getting to the doctor, right? They're isolated, and they can't get there to have the test that they need or chemotherapy or something like that. But the health effects of loneliness are happening through our uh, our immune systems and our hormonal systems. And so it can affect many different things about our health. So, um, you know, Stacey mentioned our physical health, like our blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, but also our cognitive functioning and sort of more general measures of mental health. So I actually think that loneliness is more important for thinking about how it affects population health than social isolation. I know this is totally not in any of our wheelhouses. Or I don't know if it's even answerable, but like, like, like what makes us dependent on other people? Have you ever come across this? Like, what is it about the human animal that causes us to be like distressed if we're not connecting to people? I think a nice, a nice theory for this is thinking about how we've evolved as social beings, right? We've evolved as part of these hunter gatherer groups where we're hanging out with, you know, 20 to 60 other people all the time. And we really have depended on others for our survival. And so loneliness is sort of our body saying to us, hey, you're not being protected by the group, you're not being taken care of. And it's evolution's way of making sure that we notice that something's wrong and we and we get back into a pod. I mean, it also it reminds me of some of the readings that my students and I have read as we've uh, waded through the symbolic interactionist literature and just thinking about these ideas of how the self is created in interactions with others and, you know, the idea of the looking glass self. And so I remember early in the pandemic, as we were all kind of, you know, um, gathering on Zoom and, and sort of navigating this brave new world together, thinking about, you know, what is it like when you, you know, you, you go out and you nobody's really looking at you, you're under a mask, like why even, you know, get out of the sweatpants, etc. Those were some of the early discussions about this kind of performative aspect being lost. And, and, and then, you know, other ways that it was being maybe recreated as well. I mean, you could see people asking, like, what's the point? So much of what we do is involves interactions with other people. Like, why write unless someone's going to read it, right? Like, what's the point of drawing up a lecture unless someone's going to hear the lecture? Yeah, that's how I was. I was never a really great, like, diary keeper. I would start, like, I would have these yeah. beautiful little diaries when I was a teenager, and I would try, and then, like, I just couldn't couldn't do it for myself. Now I actually take notes for myself and then, you know, obviously jottings for things that I may want to publish. But I remember it being very hard to just say, you know, dear diary every day. I couldn't do it. 
<laughs> yeah, now you're an ethnographer. <laughs> Taking notes for a living. <laughs> the irony of it all. <laughs> <laughs> Had to be for someone else's consumption, I guess. But like you could see you could see how loneliness becomes a problem as you age, right? Like especially yeah. if it's meaningful relationships that you're seeking instead of just any relationship. It's like if what you do is I don't know, engage with your peers and your peers start disappearing or the world that's meaningful to you starts disappearing. You could really end up it's a situation where you're like, what's the point of anything or what do I do? Tell me what are, what you guys both study loneliness in elderly people, but I Stacy, you mentioned that there are a lot of myths. Was it one of you mentioned that there was a lot of myths about the elderly and loneliness as well? So what happens as you age with loneliness? What what's going on there? I mean, I think I think one of the things is thinking about kind of the arc of aging studies and the sociology of aging. There were a lot of myths, you know, around, I would say, kind of the 50s, 60s, 70s, that older people withdrew from society, that something happened when you were older. It was like it was called disengagement theory. Hmm. And then there were um, a number of writers, sociologists, anthropologists, in including Arlie Hochschild in The Unexpected Community, which was her first book. And she debunked that and said, okay, well, wait a second. There's a lot of interactions happening and then connections being forged in the senior complex of buildings. And so that's really not happening. And even our ideas about relationships. And so one of the things I've um, examined is looking at you know social ties and sort of social relationships and trying to take a little bit of a network approach, although you know I'm a qualitative researcher, so I won't claim to have done like a big uh, study. But thinking about those categories, one of the very influential um, psychologists who have studied these relationships, uh, Laura Karstensen at Stanford University, uh, developed this idea of socio-emotional selectivity theory, and basically um, arguing that older adults and their, their needs and relationships and needs for social interaction and ties change over time. And so whereas younger people may be um, looking to accrue many, many weak ties and, and just like large in, you know, enlarge in their networks because they're like seeking work, for example, looking for a partner. Older people may be more content with having smaller networks. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to grieve and mourn the loss of people in their lives. And that also, to Rachel's point uh, before, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they aren't going to struggle with finding people to help them do practical things in their lives. I mean, if you have a lot of friends and a spouse who's passed away, you need to figure out how to do these like activities of daily living, do your errands, go to the doctor's appointment, etc. but that they may feel, you know, greater contentment. And so one of the things that I felt hadn't been highlighted as much, and I didn't have the energy to write anything about this, but I'm working on it for my, my book kind of conclusion, is that in the pandemic, I think there's a lot that we could learn from older adults in terms of all of their, their resilience and the things that they've had to go through in order to kind of weather, especially, you know, sort of the, the early part when we everybody was telling older people, stay home, stay home, stay home. Yeah. But also taking a, a page from their playbook and thinking about ways that they've managed to you know, either nurture relationships and, and be content maybe with fewer ties or be content with sort of ties to acquaintances and neighbors and other other people that they've had to include in their social worlds as they've had to replenish certain ties. That That's really interesting. Does the nature of loneliness change as you age? Like, for example, I, I'm getting the sense from what you just said that there's some instrumentality 
in the social relations we have and like is loneliness from what you've observed does it have something to do with sort of frustrated expectations and maybe those expectations are different like when you're young you're lonely because you're not meeting enough people is that how it works i might want rachel jump in there i have to say you know in my study a, a lot of people didn't express loneliness yeah. like they weren't so i might not be the right person to answer this question but i don't know if you have any thoughts rachel yeah, I mean, I guess I would word the question in a slightly different way. I mean, we can think about whether more older adults report loneliness than younger adults, right? And so I think it's this myth that loneliness is only an older people's problem, because and it's not, right? We do see like the highest levels of loneliness for adults 80 and above, where, you know, 30 to 35% of the oldest adults are reporting loneliness. Mm. Um, but it's not that low in middle ages, it's around 20%. Mm. And it's a bit higher among young adults. But I think the causes of loneliness are maybe different for younger and older adults, right? I think young adulthood is really difficult these days. And I think maybe the problem is more, not necessarily the number of social relationships, but more the quality of those relationships. I think for older adults, I think loneliness is more about adjusting to life's transitions. So, you know, we'll see that older adults are more likely to report loneliness right after they've retired, right? Or right after yeah. a spouse has passed away or something like that. I also think older adults have more of these contextual risk factors for loneliness. So, you know, they're more likely to not have people depending on them. They're more likely to live alone. They're more likely to um, have lost close friends. And so I think, you know, as we think about what's happening in the future and what's happening with older people and the fact that we're going to have so many more older people, we can think about like these contextual factors and then what people can do to sort of offset those different kinds of things. But yeah, I think loneliness is a bit of a different animal for people in their 20s and people in their 70s. Talking about adjustment, though, as you get older, Stacey, I really enjoyed your piece. Uh, it made me think, uh, not to get too Canadian, but like it, it made me think of all the old folks at Tim Hortons, which was the, that's sort of like the old people hub where I grew up. <laughs> I wrote a great op-ed on, on McDonald's and public spaces. And it was just, it was a nice sort of, illustration of the survival strategies that older people go through. Can you tell us a little bit about your work uh, and those sort of public congregation spaces? Absolutely. And it seems like everywhere I go, I'm just kind of hanging out at these places because I there was a recent, or I guess a couple years ago, a uh, conference in Montreal for ASA. And of course, I met an older guy at the Tim Hortons. Yeah. And he even gave me like a free McDonald's, like he had a, a McDonald's frequent flyer coffee card. He said, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to give this to you. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so my, my research has looked at how older adults are creating these webs of connections to help them deal with some of the transitions that uh, Rachel has mentioned in neighborhood spaces. And so um, initially, I was interested in understanding uh, how this little bakery in, in Manhattan had survived gentrification. I was just shocked that it was still around. It seemed this place that was preserved in amber, uh, you know, just very, you know, no frills, low key. And uh, I initially found this place when I was 
working on my uh, MFA thesis. And I was, you know, I apparently I had the same schedule uh, as a graduate student <laughs> that a lot of older people did. So I would kind of roll out of bed when I wanted and we would be there. And it wasn't until I started to think about studying this place more formally that I realized, oh yeah, wait a second, everybody but me <laughs> who are like the most frequent customers here and, and linger for hours at a time are all in their 70s you know, to 90s. And, and, and why is it that this is the, their place? Why are they not at the senior center? Um, and then you know, where else are they gonna go when the place closed? And so I did end up at McDonald's and a couple other places around the neighborhood, you know, park benches, other little delis where there was a table with four chairs and that was, you know, enough to recreate an evening nighttime world of older adults. And so I think, you know, one of the things that Rachel highlighted too in some of her research about measuring isolation or measuring loneliness rather and looking at some of the things that people mentioned as, I guess, facilitating connection are going to familiar places. And so that's what I found in my study is that, you know, people that I spent time with had mobility problems. They couldn't really walk very far from their homes. And so those places, there was a sort of radius of walkability around their apartments. And um, and then they'd make their rounds, you know, their daily rounds. So that was very important. And it became, to, to quote Lynn Laughlin's work in the public realm, their home territories. And so it wasn't like they were just aging in place, like in their apartments in the four walls of their home, but they were aging in all of these different places. And that's where they would see, you know, people became, you know, either familiar strangers, right? And they just kind of saw people and didn't interact. But often they became more than familiar strangers. Now, whether they were friends, that's a whole other question, um, uh, or they considered each other neighbors, but they definitely were doing a lot of sharing, you know, they were doing a lot of venting, they were doing a lot of like, comparison shopping when it came to like doctors and prescriptions and all sorts of uh, practical services were exchanged as well. I think there is something that we can all really relate to about this story uh, that you're telling about age, people aging in a small neighborhood during COVID. Like we all are home so much more. We're noticing our neighbors more. We're not taking public transit. We're not getting in our cars. And so we all have these like much more limited spaces. And yeah, I hope that people are just like thinking about <laughs> what it's like to be old as we're all sitting at home <laughs> and like thinking about how they can help an older neighbor out you know it's true i mean i miss starbucks a lot and i'm doing exactly the same thing at starbucks as i do at my home office right i'm just on a computer but there is something that i definitely miss i miss taking the subway it's just how you feel connected but the dynamic that you're discussing about mcdonald's and things like that like i see that with teenagers too you know they all go at the same time and it reminds me of a concept i don't i mean i don't know anything about loneliness or or really you know, much micro social, but like in econ social, my field, there's sort of like a concept of local economies of scale. It's like mm -hmm. all the tech firms converge in San Francisco because that's where all the talent is and the other tech firms. And it's like just it becomes a drop in spot, I guess, where people can be assured to find some type of interaction. I was just going to say, I think that that's really key. And um, it's interesting because I have another paper that looks uh, at the different places where my participants went more in the contract of 
uh, context of gentrification. And so really trying to understand, you know, what were the viable options where they could regroup after their central gathering spot closed and what are the places that didn't work. And one of the places where they did regroup was McDonald's and there were, you know, the afternoon crowd of teenagers there. And so it's very interesting dynamic where you'd have like the older, McDonald's had been a hub of kind of older adults gathering anyway. So there were sort of like the pre-group and they had this little area that was cordoned off by a railing in the front of the store and they would go there. And then they had like the teenagers in the afternoon would be in the back. It was very interesting, some of the dynamics. I never spoke mm-hmm. to, unfortunately, any of the teenagers and I, they even thought about the older people, but the older people were very aware of their presence and they actually missed them when they were not there. You know, when the school was out, they said, oh, like they're not there. But then sometimes they complain like, oh, they're throwing ice cubes at each other. <laughs> It's a very interesting dynamic, but it also reminded me of this point that I always liked in, in Arlie Hochschild's first book, The Unexpected Community, where she talked about, you know, early, the teenage years or, you know, kind of early adulthood and much later adulthood as being these sort of complementary times when you're not entrenched in these institutions of work and family, where there's like a lot of sort of creativity and maybe time and trying to figure it out. And so I always thought that there was something complementary about those two groups there. And they're both income constrained. Yeah, they are both income constrained. I think like some of the most interesting policies to combat loneliness in Europe are actually taking advantage of those two groups and how much time they have. Mm -hmm. So there are some really interesting programs, for example, in the Netherlands and Denmark, where they offer really reduced price housing to university and college students in basically these like naturally occurring retirement communities. And that's a way of Mm -hmm. connecting these groups who have time to hang out (laughs) what a great idea i mean i always liked older people i'm sure like uh, a lot of us did when we were younger the ones who turned out to be professors at least you know (laughs) that that's so we i want to talk i want to move to rachel though because you brought in a comparative angle and i thought this was a really fascinating facet of your work it how does loneliness in canada and the united states compare to loneliness elsewhere is it like Is it something that differs between societies or is it something that we do it particularly well or poorly in North America? How how does it work international? In North America, we're kind of average. (laughs) Um, So in the U.S., a recent study found that like between 20 and 25 percent of adults said that they felt lonely in the last week. Um, It's a little bit lower in Canada. It's a little bit higher in Australia. It's kind of similar to North America and the United Kingdom. And, you know, if we look across, so some of my work is comparative, looking across lots of different countries. And if we think about loneliness among older adults, most countries fall in the range of like between 20 and 40% report being lonely. So I don't think that the U.S. is is that different. There's some interesting comparative work looking at like differences uh, across European states where there are so many differences in social life and the importance of family and the importance of the state. And that work is really interesting because it finds that loneliness is actually higher in Southern European countries where families are more tight knit. Um, There's more of this, like people who are less socially isolated but more lonely. And then in Northern Europe, and especially Scandinavian countries, older adults rely more on friends, and they actually report lower levels of loneliness. So 
I think that sort of gets at a lot of interesting different ideas in sociology about like what the role of broader society is in combating older adults' loneliness. It can't really just be about the family, right? And as more and more older adults, you know, aren't married, don't have kids, we can't really think of family as the place to deal with loneliness. Well, that's, that's really interesting. It's like kind of profound. So what does that say about like the social ties that are important to us? Like, it's hard to imagine anybody more important to us, at least theoretically, than our families or people who know us better. So what does it say about social ties that many people find them to be deficient? Yeah, I think that people get a lot of important things from family, um, especially we get lots of instrumental support from family. Like you're not going to ask your friend who you sit with at McDonald's to you know, help you with your mobility problems in your apartment. Right. I think that people really need different kinds of social contacts. And older adults need not just family, but also friends and acquaintances. And I think that having regular contact with those groups is actually really key for keeping people's lives feeling full. Hmm. Yeah, Stacey's work touches on some of this. Like, maybe you can talk about sort of the different levels of importance that people place on these different kinds of ties. Yeah, I mean, I I would say it's, you know, it's kind of a medley and a mix. And like Rachel was saying, you know, in my study, when the crisis, the huge health crisis came, um, you know, somebody was hospitalized, somebody had a heart attack, maybe they had to consider, you know, they had to spend some time in a nursing home to, to recuperate. The family was there, uh, you know, often, like even older adults that I had my study who, you know, were never married, didn't have children, but had like a sibling in Texas, for example, that sister had to become very involved in kind of the day-to-day management of this crisis. But I would say too, um, I, you know, to emphasize Rachel's point, having a, a sort of buffet of connections that you can select for different occasions, uh, I think it's, it's really important. And that there, there are varied needs and that family can't fulfill it all. And that's when close ties can also be burdensome, right? And so that's the thing that um, was very important to the people in my study too, is not wanting to become a burden, not wanting to be overly dependent, really wanting to maintain independence, which really is interdependence. And so how do you achieve interdependence? Sometimes you do have to rely on family. Sometimes you're going to kind of spread that responsibility around and, and rely on a friend for some issues. I don't know if either of you have delved into this. Has loneliness gotten better or worse over time? I mean, you know, you hear about bowling alone, for example, and we're not part of like the Kiwanis Club anymore. No, we're not. <laughs> but on the other hand, we're we're all tied together. I know with social Twitter, you know, somebody had a close family member pass away, and I felt sad for them. I had never met that person in real life. But they were kind of an internet friend, and I felt sad as I would for you know anybody I knew. Like, uh, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Or is it sort of it's always the same, just in a different package? I think that the research is not perfect on this. We don't have uh, really long-standing studies that ask questions about this for the same sample with the same question over time. So um, I think that there's some evidence that levels of loneliness are increasing in North America, but I don't think that it's like as strong as newspaper reporters would like it to be when they want like really flashy headlines. Sure. However, I do think that there are a lot of changes that are happening with 
which make loneliness more likely for older folks, especially. Um, and so we need to sort of think about the how these contextual factors are going to play out over time. Um, so if, you know, pay attention to these things that do contribute to loneliness, for example, like more living alone, fewer people married, population aging, right? Fewer regular social interactions in bowling clubs and Kiwanis club and things like that. And getting people to think about how they're going to handle these things in the same way that we plan for other kinds of transitions, like uh-huh. plan for having wider social networks. I think that can be like a more positive aspect to thinking about how we're going to deal with loneliness as a society moving forward. That's very much in line. I remember a little over a year ago, I spoke with Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto, who did a study on uh, retiring professionals. And she said exactly the same thing. She said the people who adjust well to retirement are the ones who make deliberate efforts to make sure that their days are full and that they have endeavors. Like they make it their job to not be alone, to not wallow. I was going to just, you know, chime in. It's really, I'm very skeptical, especially of like media reports, like there's a crisis of loneliness or like, oh, it's Christmas Eve. What's happening with all the older people? You know, I I, I tend to be, you know, c- kind of try yeah. to take a little bit more of a nuanced view. And I just remember um, when I was a graduate student doing this research, uh, a reporter from the Wall Street Journal got in touch with me and she had wanted to kind of recruit some people for an interview. And her whole take on, I mean, she already had the story settled in her head before she talked to me. They always do. Yeah, (laughs) they always do that. You know, baby boomers are getting older and what's going to happen to all the older women who were like single their whole lives, don't have family um, and are, you know, faced with the health crisis and are all alone. And I told her I I really couldn't find people to kind of support that finding because the people in my study who were, you know, either had never married or or were widowed or divorced and, and, and never had children, they were some of the best positioned to tackle this time in their lives. They had spent their entire lifetimes. They were so they were working. They were very self-sufficient. They, they had to plan for a life, you know, of being on their own. They cultivated a number of relationships to help them go through these transitions, um, as we were just talking about with the transition to retirement and who, you know, finds that a really exciting time in their life and who's sort of struggling because they're losing, you know, kind of their their routines that they had in place and hadn't really been able to develop another vision. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, if you think about women who have never been married, but are involved in all these other activities, they've actually cultivated those skills over time of learning how to mm-hmm. make plans with others and interact with others. And I think that's something that people who live alone have to do, because you're not just going to see someone in your bathrobe when you're mm-hmm. making coffee. Um, And I think that's one group of people. And I think there's another group of people who are unexpectedly feeling lonely at some point, and that might be due to being widowed or being divorced or changes in health, and they can't do the things that they used to do. And so I, I mean, I guess these people that you're talking about who have been on their own their whole lives in terms of family, but have these other connections, they're maybe more ready for older adulthood than people who are there by accident. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say too, you know, there's definitely a different uh, gender dynamic. And so women who are sort of the cultivators of, you know, getting people to the doctor's appointments and, and kind of keeping up, maintaining those family relationships, sending out like the greeting cards, that the people that I saw that really struggled sometimes were the older men, especially, and, and, and research bears this out, you know, older men after, um, you know, losing a, a, a their their spouses are you know heterosexual uh, women spouses are you know sometimes adrift and have to kind of figure that out but I'm still hopeful like I remember long time ago as a student uh, running into another student who studied did this great little study after but it was a study of older adults older men who gathered at a donut shop in California and so even they were able to kind of cultivate okay what did they like this sort of after retirement life. And it was very interesting because the dynamics were a lot different. I had kind of a mixed group verging more on women, but these men would clock in with each other and kind of report every day at the donut shop, like, oh, okay, I did this, I did that, I'm going to do that. Almost as, you know, they were sort of re recreating this workplace environment. Yeah, I think that's great. In my apartment building, which is mostly full of older people, there's all that same group of men and they get together in the lobby every day at two o'clock, COVID or no COVID, with their masks on. And uh, they they shoot the shit. They, they want to know everything that's happening in the building, <laughs> who's visiting whom, <laughs> uh, daily updates. But it's what's really interesting to me is I'm gathering from you that avoiding loneliness or dealing with loneliness is like a practical skill. There's practical skills attached to social connectedness. That makes me think that there are interventions used to fight the problem. Have you heard of any? Like, do you have a sense of interventions available to us? Yeah, I, I can think of like three different types of interventions. So the first is sort of so solving the structural problem of not running into anyone. And that's um, these experiments in co-housing, which are really useful programs that give people their own independent living space, but then also have some structured activities where you see people who live in other units, but also people of different ages. And then we can think about more sort of individualized programs. There's a really interesting study that experiment they did in older people where they have people journal and think about what the meaningful social relationships that they have are and what they might have lacking and what they can do. And they sort of offer these different suggestions for that. Yeah. And I, I think I could imagine also like another type of retirement transition activity where, you know, the person in HR who meets with you to talk about your benefits or, you know, you leaving work is also talking to you about how you're going to fill your time and how you're going to structure it. And I think that's something that maybe comes more naturally to women, um, which is something that Stacey touched on. But I think that it's something that can be taught. And I think that it's really useful for thinking about at these key life transitions. I mean, I would add too, you know, I'm, I'm not really thinking about interventions so much. I mean, I hope that my work has some implications, but um, I'm, and I say that as somebody who's on the health sciences campus, so everybody's always thinking about <laughs> interventions there. But one broader, you know, recommendation, I guess I would have, and I've thought a lot about this um, in our COVID times, is just making sure that people of all ages and all abilities have access to safe public spaces. Um, and so having accessible, safe spaces, um, supporting small businesses, you know, is, is, is crucial in this time because 
one of the one of the losses really has been even for my older adults is is you you can't go to the McDonald's, you can't go to the Starbucks, you can't, you know, even even in some buildings, you know, they're they don't even want you to talk in the elevator because of the like particles of virus that could be transmitted. You're not allowed to sit in the lobbies. They've like taped up the benches, so they're not even allowed to do that. And so um, you know, making sure that our we have green space, there are parks available that even crossing the street is safe, you know, that you don't have to feel like you're going to, you know, go out there and get hit by a car. I mean, like they're driving very erratically around um, many cities, including out here in the Bay Area, you know, people are getting hit. And I just think too about the recent attacks that we've had on Asian older adults uh, across the country, but in the Bay Area. And um, it's, it's painful on a number of levels. But one of the things that I think about too, is that these are older people of color who don't have the whole, you know, world uh, delivered at their door through Amazon, need to go out, shop in person, tend to bring cash around. So that also heightens like their vulnerability as as sort of, you know, perceived as an easy target. And it's really um, a difficult situation when there are other hazards, you know, whether it's like a, you know, traffic hazard, the sidewalks are broken, or you don't feel safe, or you can't, you know, the public transportation slash, like all of Mm -hmm. these form an ecosystem. And so I think having um, those places accessible is really important to be able to run in to other people and have these sort of serendipitous interactions with strangers as well. Yeah. Isn't it great when like the policy prescription for loneliness is also the policy prescription for like a happy, healthy society? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's part of it, I guess. I mean, this episode has flown by. I can't believe we're coming up on 50 minutes. But I really wanted to ask you this. How has studying loneliness, you know, affected your development as a sociologist? Like, uh, has it has it shaped sort of the trajectory of your career as a sociologist in any way? say this i would say this it's kind of interesting this topic because while i i still don't know uh, how much loneliness i found among my research participants because they were so good at cultivating all of these other relationships and kind of adjusting in their ways i have been a loner most of my life and i was incredibly lonely um, as a kid, I felt friendless, I was awkward. And so I think one of the things that I've just really learned over the years of being an, embedded in the field with a lot of older people is to kind of embrace that second half of my or second, whatever part of my life is, because honestly, everybody in my family <laughs> dies early. So knock on wood that I, I get to have, you know, a longer life, but to really kind of embrace all of it, the messiness, even the things that sort of look like what we would think of as negative interactions like gossip. It's all sort of grist for the mill. It's all kind of connecting us and and, and involving uh, us in in a a web of larger connections. So I don't know if that um, answers your question, but definitely I've learned a lot about growing old. And so, and, and to grow old without fear, which is what we should all (laughs) strive for. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think about how studying loneliness has sort of shaped how I think about sociology. I mean, I think that loneliness is kind of the perfect topic for sociologists because it involves these structural factors about our families and the state and our communities, and then all these different individual factors about 
what people like, how social they are, what they find meaningful, and then think about how it changes across the life course and how it varies across societies. And so I think that there's like so much interesting cross-cultural work that we can do about thinking about how people report loneliness, how people feel it, and like what people feel is appropriate and successful to help them combat it. So I, yeah, I kind of feel like loneliness is like this key topic when we think about social integration and like what makes us happy, what makes us happy as individuals in a society. It's, it's just kind of at the core of everything. I got that. Yeah. You know, when I was reading your stuff, that's what kind of how it struck me. I was like, well, you know, connection is really an end uh, just as much as it's a means to it. I think in sociology, we often think of how our social relations are good for doing things or how we manipulate social or social relations to achieve external goals, right? Like how you can wield cultural capital to gain economic capital or how you can manage the social. But like in a, in a lot of senses, I wonder, you know, maybe the, maybe the causality is mixed up. And like a lot of the things that we see uh, social relations as instrumental means towards an end, it, it might be reversed. You know, like we might, might like going to work to connect to other people more than work is the vehicle, just as much as work is the vehicle for money. It might be that, you know, we, uh, the things that we try to achieve, young people trying to achieve fame, or, you know, those are all seen as vehicles ultimately to get the connections that we like. It reminds me, so last week's episode, which were, it will come out, I guess the listener will hear it, who knows when. But we were talking about cults. And one of the questions I asked was like, how do people become convinced of these insane ideas? You know, like that you have to kill yourself to hitch a ride with an alien traveling behind a car or something like that. And I got a really, really interesting answer from Craig Rawlings from Duke University, who recently put out a piece. And uh, he said, you know, sometimes these cults, the belief system is secondary to the social ties. So for example, with QAnon, some people really feel a link to the other QAnon conspiracists that they relate to online. And when you malign Q conspiracy, you're <laughs> maligning a person's friends and they will, you know, contort their belief systems or act in a defensive manner because it's the social tie that they're defending, the co-conspiracy theorist oh. or the co-cult member. And it's the social tie that that is, is really the draw. And the manifest ideologies that they're fighting for are, are they're like coincidental to the the root desire to connect. I mean, that's the same with all religion, isn't it? Like cults and mainstream religions. 100%. My wife is clergy. I will tell you, absolutely. Like the people who go to her synagogue, they all go and they see each other. And it's the synagogue is a vehicle for them to get together in some point, just as much as it is for them to get together to perform some external thing. Yeah. So absolutely. So I got that in my read of your work too. I was like, wow, just connectedness. It's such a primal need. Yeah. And I, I think the people, like there are people who are, who maybe move more towards institutional connections, like being a member of a synagogue or church. And then there are others that kind of want to do their own thing. And so they'll form social relationships in, in different ways and manage those in different ways. That there's a pleasure in this connectedness. You know, I was just thinking about Zimmel's concepts of sociability and this kind of playfulness. And I mean, you know, we had a ball. Often people were singing, there were jokes, people yeah. told dirty jokes, you know, and so I think that there's 
something to be said about kind of thinking about this concept of leisure. I mean, you know, there's a time that my older adults had on their hands, they had to fill it and they didn't want to be, you know, locked up in their <laughs> apartments all day. But they're also not masterminds of like calculating. I mean, some people, you know, obviously there were some maybe thinking about different favors people would do, but there was also just they wanted to have fun. And that's important. <laughs> Well, that's about all the time we have. That just whizzed by. But it was a real pleasure to get to talk to both of you. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks to you guys. This was fun. I learned a lot. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. Thank you very much to Rachel Margolis from the University of Western Ontario and Stacey Torres from the University of California, San Francisco. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianix, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.com. Our lead producers are Liseth Moreno and Han Mei Cho. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.